Yes, we are back on a hoops journey. A uh, gentleman who's playing and coaching career goes from coast to coast, um, both as a player and a coach. Had the opportunity to play against some of his teams. Um, he sort of semi-quasi recruited me back in the day. Uh, uh, if you know anything about U Sport, CIS, CIAU basketball, um, you know the name Don Horwood. And it's a complete honor and privilege to have uh, a Hall of Famer with us today. Coach, how are you? I'm very well, Aaron. How are you? And I did recruit you, yes. And you said, no, I don't want to go to that cold place, Edmonton. <laughs> and then it ended up no, going I'm to Brandon. Brandon. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Warmer place, Brandon. That's right. Well, that uh, going going out to the ID camp was still one of my funnest moments as a basketball player. Right after you guys had won the national championship, and uh, we got to go to a couple nice dinners with you guys, and um, you know, room with the guys on the team and hang out. So that was still a, you know a great memory for me, and um, something I'll always cherish. And then having the opportunity to compete against your teams was was a pleasure as well. How are things going for you? And how's life? And you know, retired life. How's the golf game? And uh, What's keeping you alive these days? Well, I retired in 09, and uh, we moved back here to Victoria in 2010. So we've been here 10 years now, and I had two goals when I retired. One is I wanted to lower my handicap, and I wanted to lose 10 pounds. So I've lowered my handicap, and I only have 20 more pounds to go. <laughs> well, you're... You're living the good life, though, so that's good. Um, did did you get lots of rounds in during uh, quarantine time, or what did that look like for well, you? Well, actually, no. Our course course was closed for about a month and a half, and okay. uh, so yeah, that was that was a tough time. Well, it's a tough time for everybody, but um, mm -hmm. yeah. So no, no, no golf then, and couldn't use the practice facility. So uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the best of times, but uh, it was. You know, we had it better and have it better here on the island than most people have. So we don't have a lot to complain about, even though we still complain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you need to complain about something for sure. Well, true enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> and like I mentioned to you, um, it was great to hear you be the uh, keynote speaker at the 75th anniversary of the BC High School Boys. And um, thought you did a great job there. And it must have been fun to kind of go back and see some old faces and although the facility is different kind of have some more memories brought back to you what was that experience like for you well aaron i mean you know the bc high school boys basketball tournament and bc high school boys basketball in general were a major part of my whole coaching career i mean i coached one year in st john's newfoundland before i moved out here and when i moved out here uh, i came here to be a coach but I expected to be an assistant coach. That's, that was my, my plan, but it didn't work out that way. But I got thrown right into the hopper right away. And my first year, which was 69-70, so in, in March of 70, I went to my first BC High School Boys Basketball Championship at UBC in War Memorial. And uh, I mean, the atmosphere and everything about that was right out of Hoosiers. And I mean, I still get goosebumps now thinking about uh, the BC High School Boys Basketball Championship. And, of course, it's been interlocked in my career ever since because not only did I coach in it and we went, won some championships, but when I was at the University of Alberta, I recruited many, every year, as a matter of fact, I recruited some players 
uh, from British Columbia. And, you know, I had such a great respect for the coaches in the, in the BC High School Boys Basketball Association and the job that they did. And, of course, the players that in turn uh, came from their programs were always uh, fundamentally very sound. And so I always was trying to get a few of those players to come to the University of Alberta to, to hopefully try to get us at the level that we could compete nationally. Yeah, and you you always did a great job of that, and you know you're a great recruiter, and we'll get into that for sure. Um, and thanks for sharing that. We've been to the Gary Taylor Classic as a program the last um, probably three out of four years. We've gone over to the the junior senior boys tournament at Oak Bay, so it's you know it's fun to go back and you know um, I don't know how many games you get to make out to to see during the season, but um, nice to have you back on the island and hanging out, keeping Hyde Lay in, in line, I guess. <laughs> well, you talk about things coming full circle. My son, who graduated from the University of Alberta and played for the Bears while while I was there and he was there, uh, he he w left in 2002 after our championship in 2002 and moved to Taiwan to teach English, you know, like many guys did. He had an arts degree. And, of course, he ended up staying there 17 years, married a Taiwanese girl. <coughs> And he just moved back to Canada two years ago. And guess where he's working part-time? St. No, Michael's University School with Ian Heidley. <laughs> That's hilarious. So you talk That's about our lives being in, in, intertwined. and uh, Yeah. That, but that's the basketball community in Canada. I mean, that's why uh, if we get going back into my history all the way back to when I started, I mean, there's 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 threads throughout the my... Uh, involvement and my observation of basketball in Canada that goes right back to watching Ken Shields on the bench with the UBC Thunderbirds in 1968 in Antigonish, Nova Scotia at the CIAU National Championship and I didn't even know who Ken Shields was and he didn't get to play in the game so I didn't even know he was on the team until one time I was talking to him out here and I, I was reminiscing about that tournament and he said, oh, I know all about that. He said, I sat on the bench for UBC. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I mean, that UBC played Waterloo Lutheran in the semifinal of the, B of the national championships in 1968 in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. And I was there. And one other um, uh, player from Memorial University and our head coach, Ed Brown, we had gone there to observe because we were interested in getting involved in coaching. And the game again... UBC played against Waterloo Lutheran, who ended up winning the championship, was such an unbelievably exciting game that, like, I have shivers even now thinking about it. But, I mean, when I saw that game and the dramatic end to it, I just thought, man, I just, I gotta get, I gotta be involved in this. I gotta be part of this. It's just so invigorating and so motivating and so exciting. And then when I find out... 60 years later, 50 years later, whatever it is, Ken Shields, who is an icon of basketball in Canada, was actually on the bench for UBC in that one game, and I was sitting in stands watching it. So, I mean, the threads just run through Canadian basketball because uh, it's such a small community. So it's so interconnected and intertwined. Yeah, and that's been the cool part with this little podcast adventure. And, um, you know, it's a couple of BC guys doing it, but we've interviewed people from all over Canada and just the connections and, um, 
I think people are just really enjoying reliving some memories for themselves. And um, if you must know, you were a hot request to have on the show. So... Let's just jump right into what life was like for you. You know, you were born in Newfoundland and and talk about what you were like as a young guy and and how how did sports start to come into your life and you and you know and then we'll get to that kind of those moments where you know you thought wow, I really got to get into this experience of basketball, but were you an active guy? Did you enjoy sport right from the get-go and, and talk about what it was well, like Aaron, uh, growing, growing up? Growing up growing up in Carbonear, Newfoundland is not something you can imagine and especially not in the 1950s. We had no telephones, no cars. We were in a small fishing village outside of St. John's in Newfoundland. We had a gymnasium that's probably the size of my house right now. Um, we had no phys ed teachers. Um, I played every sport imaginable by, you watch football on television, we went outside and started playing football. Um, we, we played soccer, we played well, we didn't, couldn't play basketball because there was no place to play it. We didn't see it on television back in those days. So we really didn't. Need, I grew up not even really knowing what basketball was. My uh, final year in high school, we, uh, we had a phys ed teacher finally for my, the only time I was in, in high school. And he organized two basketball games for us, one at home and one away. <laughs> that, was a, that was my high school uh, basketball experience. We, of course, knew nothing about how to play. I didn't know what a jump shot was. I'd never seen any such thing in my life. Anyway, from there, um, I mean, I grew up playing hockey like every Canadian kid. And, 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 and in the summer, we had baseball organizations and so on. But I mean, it was all at such a small minor level that you would not even be able to imagine it compared to anything that you grew up with. But um, I love sport. And, and uh, when the time came to go to university, um, I, I didn't have a lot available to me because we didn't have a lot of money. So at the time, Joey Smallwood was offering free tuition for anybody who went into education because they wanted teachers. Well, okay, so I'm going to go into education, free tuition, that takes care of that. And I thought, well, I just don't want to do education. I, I, phys I like sports, so I'll go into phys ed. So anyway, that's what I did. So I ended up doing uh, five years at Memorial University and got a phys ed and education degree. And then in my, uh, and I played uh, five years of basketball. My first two years, I was on the JV team, which competed against the local high school. So that'll give you an idea of, of the caliber. And then uh, I was one year as an intermediate player. And then my final two years, I was with the varsity and and I actually captained the varsity my final year. But the varsity in those days for us probably was, I, I, don't, I doubt we were even at the level of Langara that, that you played on. I mean, I think you, you guys probably would have handled us quite easily, but we were, we were basically a college level team. We didn't play outside the, um, outside the province. We played in the senior men's league in, in St. John's. And anyway, once I started playing basketball, I really, really, enjoyed the game and so I'd spent a lot of time on my own practicing and again I say we didn't see it on TV in those days you know but back in the in the early 60s there was really no basketball on television and definitely none in Newfoundland <laughs> you might have got it out here in the, on the west coast because of Seattle being close and so on but we didn't get it so all of those um, things that are taken for granted like uh, hook shots and jump shots and pick and rolls and all, all those kinds of things were all new experiences to us I mean, we had a little bit of it at Memorial because we had a coach who'd played on the mainland, so he knew some of it, but it was all pretty new to us. So 
when I graduated from high school, I got recruited to, to teach and coach at Brother Rice High School in St. John's. Now, they were a progressive high school. The, the head there was uh, Brother Malloy, and he was actually had just moved in from New York, and he really wanted to establish a, a sports and, a, and an artistic music program, etc. So anyway, they recruited me to come on there and, and coach and, and, um, and teach. So I was in my first year. Now, if I get going too long here, Aaron, you can stop me at any time because I, I can go on, you know, <laughs> it's pretty hard to stop me once I start talking. But love anyway, it. Love it. I love we it. Were, uh, we were in the staff room at uh, Brother Rice High School in St. John's, Newfoundland in the fall, probably November of uh, 1968, which was my graduation year. I graduated in March or April of 68, started teaching in September. So I'm sitting in the staff room and, and this came up at the BC High School Boys anniversary this year, you might have seen me mention that I had a pamphlet in my hand. And an envelope came into our staff room. It was addressed to the athletic director. Well, of course, there was no athletic director, so they handed it to me. And I opened it up, and it was a pamphlet uh, edited by John Lee Kutnikoff from Simon Fraser University. And basically, it was kind of a synopsis of all the championships across the country and interviews with some uh, basketball icons of the day in the, in the 60s, etc. And um, several of those articles were from British Columbia, of course, because of uh, coming from Simon Fraser. And then I read, the, I read the article on the BC High School Boys Basketball Championship, which had been held at UBC. And that had been, you know, 5,000 fans and the pack to the rafters and the bands playing and, and the people clamoring to get in. And so on. And I read this article and I thought, wow, that, if I want to coach, that's where, I, that's where I need to be. So not knowing a thing about anything west of, of Ontario, not, not ever having thought about it really, I decided, okay, I'm going to write to school boards in British Columbia to see if I can get a job. So I went to the, to the Newfoundland Teachers Federation and I got the addresses of the seven school boards in British Columbia. Again, not knowing where any of them were. And I wrote to seven different school boards indicating that I had a desire to, to move to uh, British Columbia and be a teacher and a basketball coach. And I sent my letters off and I got n I, no response from anybody except from Victoria. And I got a letter back from Victoria School Board saying they weren't doing any hiring right now, but they would be in touch with me in, I think they said May, or they might have said the spring. So I kind of put it out of my mind. And then in May, uh, yeah, May, I guess it was, all of a sudden I'm in the staff room and I got a call. Would Don Horwood please come to the office? There's a telephone call. So I went to the office and it was a phone call from Victoria. Now imagine this, a phone call sight on scene, no interview, a phone call from Victoria, British Columbia, and the man at the other end, I can't remember who he was, I have no idea, said to me, Don, he said, I've got your letter here. He said, are you still interested in moving to British Columbia and uh, teaching and coaching? And I said, yes, boy, that's what I am. <laughs> he said, well, he said, we're looking to hire. So he said, if you're interested, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you within a day or two. So immediately popped into my head, I better put some pressure on this guy. And I said, well, I'm negotiating with another school board right now, so I need to know within a day or two. He said, okay, I'll get back to you. So he phoned back the next day and he says, Don, we can offer you a job in Victoria, uh, teaching high school English and phys ed and maybe helping with the basketball program. 
Oh, she said, yes, boy, that's all right. I'm happy to do that. <laughs> so I got in my car and I drove across the country. And here I is. You drove. <laughs> you drove? You drove? Oh, sure. Yeah, 1968 lime green Mustang. Awesome. Beauty. My first car. But I bought it brand new after I got, after I got my teaching job. $3,000, half my salary. And then in the summer of 69, well, actually, I was working in Saint-Jean-Quebec because I worked in the Air Force in the summertime. I was working in Saint-Jean-Quebec, fulfilled my duties there, and then got in my car and drove to British Columbia and got here for the Labor Day weekend and then started school on the Tuesday at Oak Bay High School. Now, you talk That's about <laughs> you talk about luck. I walked into... They had they had just lost the BC Championship the year before by one point to Victoria High School, Vic yeah. High, yeah. and they had only lost one game all year long. Of course, Gary Taylor was the coach. They'd only yeah. lost one game all year, and that was the final of the BCs in overtime by one point to Vic High, whom they'd beaten five or six times throughout the year. Yeah. Anyway, this is the kind of atmosphere I arrived in. I had no idea what I was doing or how to handle the situation or anything. And I, I just walked into a perfect coaching situation, except that I wanted to learn. I wanted to be an assistant coach. And the two other people they asked to coach the team uh, said, no, they couldn't do it. Their schedule was too busy. They had too big a workload and they wouldn't do it or couldn't do it. And so guess what? The young guy was the coach and that was me. <laughs> <laughs> so I walked well, into the Hoosiers of Canada at the time, in in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, you definitely did. And um, I think you know you mentioned you you mentioned the word luck, but I think one of the things that we've learned, and you've probably learned through sport too, is you know you can't really grow or have things come to you unless you take a little bit of risk, right? Or you you step out of your comfort zone. And for a young oh, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely, Aaron. Yeah, and so for a young man to to take that risk to throw themselves out there to not only write and, and, you know, go on the hunt, but then to say, you know what, I'm out of here and I'm going for it. So yeah, there is a little bit of luck there and you walked into some great teams, but you know, you, you took some risk and you were able to gain from that, right? Well, you know, Aaron, I, I look back on it and I think, you know, at the time I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about this and, you know, this didn't, it wasn't a big decision to make. I just wrote those letters and um, I, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what it meant to actually move. The first weekend I spent here in Victoria, that Labor Day weekend, of course, because I didn't know anybody, I came in, it was a holiday and nobody was around. I have to yeah. be honest there, I spent most of those three days crying, wondering yeah. what I had done, how stupid was I, left everybody <laughs> I knew in the world. And I mean, I was homesick. I was, I was homesick. I was 22 years old and I was very very homesick and i actually did say what in god's name have you done what how could you be so stupid but it's like jumping in into the pool you know you sink or swim and and basically i'd made made my decision i'd made my bed and now i had to survive and i had to I had to work through and and obviously i did yeah and you and you mentioned you know at that time kind of the Hoosiers level. So just talk about the basketball that you were able to be a part of at that point. And and co and I mean, like you said, you you know Jay Triano said on the podcast when we had him, he said you fake it till you make it kind of thing, right? And <laughs> learning on the fly, learning on the fly. And but just talk about 
like you mentioned, you're coming off a, a group of guys that have just lost in the provincial final that are hungry and want to get back. And now you're the head coach and, um, just share a little bit about that and, and just what Island basketball was like during those times. Cause it was phenomenal and still is phenomenal, but you know, you're kind of in a time where it was, you know, on another level. Well, um, getting back to that first year, like I, I, I ended up being the head coach, which I, I was, I wanted to be an assistant coach cause I really did not have any knowledge. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. It's like, uh, Jay said, fake it till you make it in Newfoundland. We used to have the saying is bullshit baffles brains so you bullshit until you make it I guess it's basically so anyway we we're running practices and I had these guys doing cross-country and lifting weights and I mean they were looking at each other and shaking their heads well, who is this nutcase because you know Gary didn't do that kind of stuff with him he worked them really hard but he didn't do those kind of extra things but anyway uh, so we were about maybe I don't know three weeks into training and Walter Burroughs a name that you'll recognize uh, Walter was our team captain and, and uh, the third of the famous Burroughs brothers from Victoria. Yeah. He came to me at the end of one practice and they called, they used to call me Noof. And he said, Noof, he said, are we going to run a one three one half court press this year? To, you know, the Bays have been running this now for the last five or six years and it's really been successful. Da, 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 da. And so I thought, mm, okay, Walter, um, I'm not really sure right now what's going to be work best for us, so I'm going to need to, a little more time to assess our talent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so then the practice was over, and I rushed home, and I got out my two basketball books, and I looked up, what the hell is a one-three-one half-court zone press? I'd never heard of that in my <laughs> life. I had no idea what he was talking about, and I couldn't even find it in any one of my books, so I didn't have enough books either. <laughs> so as Jay said, I had to fake it till I make it. But you know. Um, we, we struggled in the first, first, uh, that first year. I remember I was trying to run a thing called a Drake Shuffle offense, which at the time was a, an old offense for even the 60s. But when it was run properly, it's very similar to um, what they call the flex now or what they used to call the flex. Very similar kind of offense. But, of course, I knew nothing about how to, how to run it, how to teach it, how to set it up or anything like that. And so we were trying to run it as best we could. And then we went to Abbotsford for our first real game and at halftime they were ahead 45 to 15. So I thought this is not going to work too well. So I had to go back and try to reassess what we we're doing and I, I, I talked to some people and I, I uh, did some more reading and more research and I realized that you know I just didn't know enough about the Drake Shuffle to teach it. I didn't know enough of the, the counters and how to how to uh, combat some of the defenses and so I had to try to find something else and so by, by looking into other ways and other means, I came up with an offense that gradually over time could, could be adjusted and, and, uh, and um, moved into what I would say more modern type of basketball. But it certainly started out very simple. Uh, it was a 1-3-1 offense, and it was a, what I called at the time a power offense, which, of course, in the 60s, you know, you, you tried to get, work through your center and run everything from that that uh, from the low post area, and so it was a lot yeah. of low post type of movements that we were we were using with a few uh, ball screens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then, of course, in the 70s, everything went away from ball screens. Now, even the time I'm talking about, Aaron, is too early for you because you're way too young. But everything in the 70s went. Uh, in the 60s, it was all ball screens. In the 70s, it was all screen away, screen away, screen away, and so. You know, you have to adjust these things over time. So the offense that I was running in in the early 70s 
over time evolved into uh, more screen away, but, but in the same basic flow as what we had been running a little bit earlier. But basically that's what, what happened is from, uh, from my first year and learning what didn't work and what worked, trial and error, you know, you adjust what you do and you try to add things and, and move them as, as, uh, as the game progresses and as your skill level progresses. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's just going to lead me to a couple other questions. Good stuff. Um, so one question would be, you know, we have a kind of a wide variety of listeners and, and uh, we have some young coaches as well. So you think back to those times you're starting at Oak Bay and the learning experiences you went through, what advice would you give to a young coach, um, you know, who's listening to the podcast and wondering about their coaching career going forward and how they can grow and learn, you know, if there's any advice that you could think of right now? Well, for me, I mean, I, I had to seek knowledge. I didn't have the knowledge. I had to seek it. So luckily in those days, I, 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 you I'm not sure. What you couldn't just hop on YouTube and look at a bunch of drills? No, no, you couldn't do that. But I could attend basketball uh, coaching clinics, and there were lots of those. And I mean, I went to coaches clinics all up and down the United States, Seattle, Portland, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, Reno, Nevada. Um, uh, San Francisco, I was doing clinics every spring and every fall. Of course, the Hope Clinic was the famous clinic in, in, uh, in British Columbia. I don't know if it was around when you started playing or not, but that, was, that Hope Clinic was, a, was a, a fabulous clinic for anybody coaching basketball in British Columbia. And Simon Fraser, of course, in my first years, they had a clinic. Uh, Simon Fraser put on a basketball clinic, and I used to go to that every every. Um, fall that would he usually uh, uh, John Lee Kutnikoff usually held that clinic sometime in September as a matter of fact one of the major influences in my coaching life came from a basketball clinic at Simon Fraser University and I attended it in um, it was September of 1972 <clears throat> and I'd been at Oak Bay now since 1969 so what's that three years and uh, we'd always made it to the BC high school tournament but we never really did very well once we got there and uh, I had been there every year, and, I, I, and the atmosphere was so amazing there that I just, inside myself, the, my goal was, and I told myself, not other people, my goal is to, to get a team to the BC High School Championship and win that thing. I want to be, I want our team to be the best in British Columbia and be champions of British Columbia High School Boys Basketball Tournament. So anyway, I went to this, this clinic at Simon Fraser, and one of the guest speakers that year... <clears throat> was a guy named Lou Tice. Have you ever heard of Lou Tice? No, not familiar to me. Okay, Lou Tice was one of the original sports psychologist uh, innovators. And he had, an, uh, he had a, his business was in Seattle, and it was called Pacific Institute of Sport. And he was a motivational speaker and a, a, uh, um, a promoter of sports psychology. So anyway, Lou was at this at the clinic in Simon Fraser, and he had a presentation. And I was at the presentation, and he was talking about the importance of your mindset and the importance of a positive attitude towards being successful. And he then went, he, he talked about some research that his institute had done on Major League Baseball. And he said, we, we did research on every single Major League Baseball team at the time, and one of the the outcomes of that research was that each major league team had been had been uh, uh, given a, a questionnaire or survey or whatever, and it was determined from that survey where, generally speaking, on average, the team thought they should finish 
at the end of the year. This would have been at the beginning of the year. So, so let's say you've got 25 guys in a baseball team and you give them this survey and they average it out and they think they should finish, well, we're probably about fourth or we, we're second or we're not very good, we're eighth or whatever. So he said they would, they then tabulated all these results and he said, you know what we found out? He said every single case, he said, now I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he said, every single case, the teams that thought they were going to be the best team were the best team. And the team that thought they were going to finish third, finished third. And he said, here's what, here's what we found that happens. If your team collectively believes that you're the best team and you're in third place, what do you do? Well, you try harder. You're motivated to go harder all the time because you think you're the best. You're in third place and there's no way you should be there. So you're driving for number one. If you think you're the third best team and you're in first place, what's your thinking? Well, your thinking is, hey, I thought we were only the third best team in the league. Now we're in first place. Wow, we can relax a little bit. You know, we're doing fine. We're okay. And before you know it, they fall off and they finish third. Anyway, he made this presentation and he talked about the, the impact of, of uh, positive thinking. And of course, you know, Dale Carnegie had the power of positive thinking and positive thinking was really big. And I started thinking to myself, you know what? I buy this stuff. I believe this. And I, I went home from that clinic and I thought to myself, I have to sell my team that they are the best basketball team in British Columbia. So this was in September of 1972. And some of the players on that team were Grant Bolin, Chris Trumpy, Dave Kersinger, Robbie Paris, and they had not experienced any BC championships. They'd been there, but, but they hadn't won anything. And I came back from that, that uh, coach's clinic, and I thought, I'm going to adopt that attitude. I'm going to convince these guys that they're the best basketball team in British Columbia. So I called a meeting after the team was selected. I called a meeting. We met at lunchtime, and I went through... The whole scenario about how we were the best basketball team in the province of British Columbia and we were the only ones who knew that but we were going to prove it to every single basketball team and high school that Oak Bay Bays are the best basketball team in the province of British Columbia and we're going to do that by winning in March at the Pacific Coliseum and I kept hammering that all year long not only that but I worked their asses off but uh, so, so there was work behind it too. It wasn't just me telling them that. You can't just be successful by thinking you're going to be positive. You've got to do the work as well. But anyway, I kept hammering that all year long. And when we'd win big games, and, and I used to schedule big games, we'd win big games and I'd come in after it and I'd say, best basketball team in British Columbia. And I'd just hammer it and I hammer it and hammer it. And in March, in the Pacific Coliseum, we were the best basketball team in the province of British Columbia. Now, what is that? I have no idea. <laughs> and as Jay said, fake it till you make it. I was faking it all year. I had no idea. And I, I was never sure that we were the best basketball team. But I damn well wasn't going to let them think differently, I'll tell you that. So I sold them on it, and I sold myself on it. And we won. And then we won again the next year, back to back. First time in something like 50 years or whatever it was. I don't know. But... But anyway, yeah. that came out of a Simon Fraser University basketball clinic. So you asked me what young coaches should do. So that's basketball clinics are number one. Uh, number two, I, I worked uh, two summers at Bob Hubrig's 
basketball camp in Whitby Island. So I, I, I applied to those camps and went down there and worked in those camps. And I worked two summers in Lenny Wilkins' basketball camp when he got hired to coach the Seattle Supersonics. So each no of those way. summers I'd go down there and spend a week working at, at a basketball camp. And that's where you actually get to learn coaching yeah. because those high school coaches that they bring in to work those camps, well, hey, you know, Rich Goulet, you know, yeah. uh, he's working basketball camps in the summer. If you spend a week with Rich Goulet or Richie Chambers or any of those guys and you're talking yeah. basketball and you're watching them run drills, and well, that's how you learn. Well, that's how I learned. I learned it by going to basketball camps in the summer, working basketball camps and going to clinics in the spring and, and, and uh, fall. So, yeah. and then other than that, you know, it's just trial and error and do the best you can and believe yeah. in yourself. Yeah. I love that. I think, uh, sometimes young coaches, we, now I remember when I was young, I just expected us to perform well and win every game, but I didn't understand that there needed to be a culture within our program as well. Right. And you, that's what was going to be my next question, but you, you answered it along your, your answer there about how, you know, through learning and being, you know, having a growth mindset and, and wanting to learn for yourself and for your program, you you found something that really attached to a group of guys and then became, you know, your thing with Oak Bay, which I think is really, really good. And, um, yeah, and I think it's important to do all those things you mentioned. So thank you for that. It's good stuff. How cool was it to finally in 73 when you have that goal in your mind and you haven't told anyone, but you know internally as a competitor, it's like, you know, I want to get this team and this program to a provincial championship. And to to make that happen, um, obviously back-to-back -back is super challenging, but that first year, how did that feel? And, and um, take us back to that final game and what you were feeling and how that game went. Well, I think, Aaron, most coaches will tell you after they reach kind of the pinnacle of whatever it is for the level they're at at that time, uh, usually the, the greatest feeling is relief because you're striving so hard to, to be that team or that program or whatever it is that getting to that level is a relief that you finally proved to yourself that, that you're able to do it and that your team's able to do it and that your program is there. So I think that's the number one thing. And of course, then it's the joy that you share uh, <clears throat> knowing that everything that you and the players and the team has worked for has culminated in that in reaching that goal. Now, there's lots of times, as you know, and, I, and certainly I know and anybody knows in sport, you can put in all that effort and still not reach that goal. And yeah. um so it, the first thing is a, re, a sense of relief that you've accomplished that goal that you set out to accomplish. And of course, depending on your level of, of, uh, of intensity and your, your level of drive, um, reaching it once is not going to be enough. <laughs> for some people, that's enough. You know, for, for others, it's more than enough. Uh, for other people, it's never enough. So it, it all depends on your level of drive and your level of commitment. I mean, I think of Michael Jordan for that, you know, when he, he won his three in a row and, and then he took some time off for baseball and won another three in a row. I mean, the, the drive that he has had, because he had all the money in the world, he didn't need, he wasn't doing this for money anymore. I mean, you know, we look at it from the outside and we think, oh yeah, you got all that money. Of course you're, you know, of course you're good. But to continue to drive to be the best, even when you've got everything else at your feet, uh, is an, an incredible internal thing that I don't think you can teach that. That has to be within the athlete or the coach or whatever it ha has to be. I don't, I really don't think you can teach that. I think, I think you can give off those vibrations and, and that can motivate other people to join you. 
but I don't think you can actually teach people to have that kind of drive. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, so after that relief of winning it and knowing that you have a talented group next year, I know um, my grade 11 year as a player under Richie Chambers and Donnie Van Oss, we were able to win the provincials. And then that was the second year of a back-to-back for Terry Fox. And then um, I was fortunate enough, 20 years later, we won the provincial title as a, you know, as a, as a coach. And then I remember the next season being probably the most challenging as a coach um, for many reasons, but I'm curious how you felt and what it was like that season after you guys won um, and how you were able to keep those guys motivated and hungry, or was it something that you just had a crazy group of guys that were internally motivated? But I'm always wondered about that yeah, 74 I, I, year, how you're able to do it again. I think that's, I think you nailed it. Uh, I think you nailed it there with a crazy group of guys. We had a, we had a particular group of guys that, well, they grew up in that atmosphere at Oak Bay High School. And I mean, I have to give credit to Gary Taylor. The atmosphere at Oak Bay High School when I came here, I mean, basketball was huge. I mean, you were really something if you were a member of the basketball team in those days back in in, uh, in the 60s and early 70s. And so these players were, you know, you were motivated to, to get on the team, number one. Then you were motivated to stay there. And then once we got to the top, I mean, those guys like, I mean, Robbie Paris, Dave Kersing. I mean, Dave played 10 years in the, in the CFL. Robbie it was the first guy to ever have his journey, a jersey retired by the uh, UVic. Uh, I mean, these guys were highly competitive guys, and their friends were like it. I mean, they're, they're close friends. They would play basketball every Saturday and Sunday in the local outdoor, um, you know, junior high schools. Wherever they could find a hoop, they'd, they'd be playing. So they were highly motivated as well. And the other thing, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay this because, uh, I mean, <laughs> I really worked their asses off. I mean, these guys worked hard. And I remember going to a clinic when I, after we had some success, and I remember telling, uh, or talking at the clinic about some of the things we did. We ran cross country. The players had a time that they had to, they had to be able to run a mile and a half under a certain time, or they would not make the team. Uh, we did some uh, weight training, and we did calisthenics, and we did plyometrics. We did jump tra jump training. So they were they were working really hard. So aside from the fact that they were good and they were motivated and so on, they also knew they were working harder than anybody else. So when we stepped on the court, we already felt we had a major advantage just because nobody was going to be able to outwork us. And I mean that's a, that's a, a that's a big factor in an athlete's mind when he knows that he's going to be. In better shape than anybody else on the court and nobody's going to be able to outwork us. So th those factors go together. I mean, once, it, once players and athletes learn the value of hard work, then, you know, they're going to keep doing that. And uh, so this was all part of the culture. You mentioned the culture. It's all part of the culture. When you, when you develop that culture and that's, that's there, then the players who are coming behind are learning from the players who are already there, and that culture just continues to develop. It's harder to do that at high school because players are only there for two years, and certainly, you know, you don't, you're not recruiting players, so you don't necessarily always get the best players. But no other school always gets the best players either. So as long as if your players are in better shape than anybody else, you're always going to have a chance, a shot in a game, and then it's up to the coach to develop strategies and. Um, systems that will will uh, help their athletes achieve the goal. So part, part of what the coach has to do is get the players ready to play, and then he kind of has to get a system that works best for his players and then put players in the position where they can succeed. 
So yeah, there's a lot involved in it, but I mean that's that's the beauty of coaching, and that's why I think most coaches are involved in coaching. It's, I mean that's that's what it's all about. It's it's it, it just gets you uh, excited to think of all the things that you got to try to do, and then you got to try to counter what the other team is doing, so that you got you know you stop what they do and you try to continue to do what you do. So it's like a chess game, and it's yeah. Well, as you can tell, I still find it exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, no, and I, you know, I think of the U of A teams that I was able to see or play against, and always remember you guys having, you know, big fit um, men on your teams, right? And I think one of the fun parts about high school too is, is, uh, you know, some of those kids that you probably had on Oak Bay never even were even thinking about having a sniff of playing at the post secondary level, but just teaching young people the value of hard work and being a part of something bigger than yourself. So. Yeah, you're challenging them to be physically fit and 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 make them be better, but they're becoming a better teammate, which in the end, no matter what they do with basketball, they're going to learn something in life and be able to use that in their business, in with their family, whatever it is, right? And that, that's one of the genuine things I appreciate and love about um, coaching the high school game too. So some good insight well, I'm there. Glad Thank you. You touched, Thank you. I'm glad you touched on that, Aaron, because in 78-79, I, I took a year off and I went to the University of Alberta and I did a master's degree in sports psych. Because I wanted to, co because I'd had some success at Oak Bay and at the provincial high school level, I wanted to coach at the university level. So I took a year off, moved my family over the mountains, and I did a master's degree. <clears throat> and then I didn't. I applied for a couple of university jobs and didn't get them. And so I came back and I was I was appointed to uh, Spectrum High School as a phys ed teacher and and um, well, and I wanted to coach the team. So so that this the year that I'm going to talk about right now, which was. Uh, 7980 was my first year at Spectrum. And so I had just spent a whole year trying to become a better basketball coach. And I'd taken a financial hit. I wasn't I didn't make any money. I you know there's a leave of absence in those days but no money involved in it. So our family had to live uh, bare bones and so on for a whole year. So I arrive at Spectrum and I call a a meeting of anybody interested in trying out for the Spectrum basketball team. Uh, somewhere around the end of September, I call a meeting at lunchtime and I walked into the room and there were five kids in the room. Now, I have just spent a whole year of my life, finances, moving my family, my wife, everything, up, up, upending our lives so I could become a better basketball coach. Now I go to a school and there's only five kids interested in playing basketball. Now I'm at a major decision in my life. In many, in many instances, a man in my position would have said, well, they're not interested in playing. I'll just spend time with my family and I'll do something else. And I spent a long time that weekend thinking, okay, what am I going to do? I actually, in fact, phoned Ken Shields and said, Ken, uh, any chance of uh, being an assistant with the Vikes this year? And he said, no, sorry, Don, uh, you know, I've already got my assistant coaches. There's, you know, I, I just don't have any, any spots available. And I said, well, okay, that's fine. Thank you. And so now I thought, all right, what am I going to do? So over the weekend, I spent thinking about, well, I just invested all this time, all this money. I still have this passion. So I either walk away from it or what alternative do I have? Well, I got to get a team. How am I going to get a team? Well, in my phys ed classes, I would go to kids in grade 10 who looked like they were half-decent athletic, and I'd go up to them and I'd say, Timmy, uh, 
why didn't you come up for the basketball team? Oh, coach, no, I wouldn't go up for the basketball team. I wouldn't make it. Oh, I think you got a pretty good chance. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Anyway, I recruited seven more kids, actually six, uh, eight more kids out of my phys ed classes and got them to come out to practices. So now I'm thinking, all right, when I was at Oak Bay High School, I ran these guys really hard because they were good athletes and they cared and they really wanted to be part of something. And so I worked them really hard. Am I going to lower my standards now? And I got 13 kids and I had to, I had to get them to come out. They weren't that interested. Am I going to lower my standards? Well, I didn't. I made them run. I made them lift weights. I made them do calisthenics. And you know, I, Aaron, I learned, that year we went three and 33. <laughs> and I learned that kids are willing to go through a wall for you if they know you're sincere and you're reasonable. Now, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't driving them so hard that they were puking and stuff like that. But yeah. I drove them yeah. hard. And, but they could see it that I cared and I was passionate about it. And the, one kid quit. So we ended up at 12 for the year. And we went 3 and 33. And I learned more about coaching that year probably than any other year I've ever coached. And what I learned that year was I had to be more adaptable. I couldn't, everything that I already learned was not just going to be good enough for this team. I had to be able to make adjustments for what they could do. But I still, but there was still no reason why they couldn't work hard. They were limited with their skills and there was limited what I could teach them and how they could execute on the court. But the demands physically to work hard were still there for them. And, you know, they yeah. accepted that. Yeah. And they worked yeah. so hard all year long. And what a great bunch of kids. I have so much respect for them. In many ways, I have more respect for them than a lot of others because they weren't getting the rewards at the end. I mean, they won three games. Out of, out of 36, they won three. <laughs> now, the other thing I did wrong that year is I should have scheduled those three, game, those three teams more often. Then we would have had more wins. <laughs> anyway, we th those same group of guys, they were in grade 10, and so they were with me in grade 11 and grade 12. So by the time we got to grade 12, we were we were first or second in the in uh, Victoria, qualified for the island tournament. We never made it to the BCs in the four years of the Spectrum, but we competed on the island uh, three of the four years. And at one year, we competed for number one in... in uh, on the island with Oak Bay High School. And um, that was when Graham Taylor was on the Oak Bay team. And as a matter of fact, Graham, we were up with about 20 seconds to go and Graham stole the ball and scored and we lost by one, I think. But um, those were the same kids that started in grade 10 and 11 and then they they worked through uh, the program with me at Spectrum. And I mean, I just have so much respect for those guys and they worked so hard and they were wonderful people. And, you know, I still look back on them so fondly with the, those years that I had uh, those teams at Spectrum who competed and couldn't win because they didn't quite have the skills, but they certainly had the desire and the work ethic and 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 uh, the level of caring that that's necessary at that level. It's awesome. Good Lad Clothing is the most unique shopping experience in the Lower Mainland. The owner Shane Meyer has worked hard to create a personal experience offering clothing, specialized coffee, haircuts, and beard trims. Located in Lower Lonsdale at 221 West Esplanade in North Vancouver, seconds from the C-Bus. If you are unable to make it to the store, you can shop online at shopthefoldgroup.com. 
And oh yeah, in store, if you mention a Hoops Journey, you'll receive 15% off anything store-wide. We want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Parkside Brewery. Located in the heart of Port Moody on Brewers Row, Parkside offers an amazing atmosphere with one of the best summer patios around. If you can't make it to the brewery located at 2731 Murray Street, then hit any government retail store and try the Don Pilsner, the Dusk Pale Ale, or my favorite, the Dreamboat Hazy IPA. A Hoops Journey promises that the beer at Parkside is much, much, much better than the owner, Sam Payne's Streaky Jump Shot. We hope to see you Parkside. that's all you really need. Great. I like, yeah. absolutely love that. And I think, you know, sometimes like you mentioned, you know, in the high school level, we're not getting paid and we're just there and we work with what we have. And if you can get kids to buy in and I think it's, I totally agree. Even kids nowadays, everybody wants to kind of rag on young people and say that they've changed and they're different. And yeah, that's, they're changing with the times. But I think genuinely, if you build connections with young people and, and they, show respect to you and you show respect to them back that they'll buy into whatever you're selling. Cause they're, they're smarter than we are in a lot of ways, right? They see through us pretty quickly. Well, you know, Aaron, I, I've already uh, uh, many times say about coaches and teachers, cause actually coaches are just uh, uh, a more specialized form of teaching. And in fact, it's a perfect teaching situation because you have kids who want to be there, but um, you know, kids, kids are like, like, they're like dogs. I, I, I say dogs because a dog can almost instantly, from your vibrations and your body actions and so on, can tell whether you're a threat or not a threat. And kids see a teacher or they hear the teacher talk or the way they say things, or a coach for that matter, and they can immediately see whether that coach or that teacher cares about them. And if the teacher genuinely cares about them, those kids are going to be on side. Yeah, they're going to do things that kids do, but they're going to be on side because they know that that teacher or that coach cares about them. If they're, the opposite is also true. If they know the teacher doesn't like kids or like them and or the coach doesn't like them, they're going to react that way as well and they're not going to be um, easy to teach or easy to coach. For sure. Good. Love it. And then how in the world does... Um, the University of Alberta Golden Bears men's basketball program come into your life and what an amazing job you did with them. You turned them into a dynasty and um, need to know a little bit about uh, the, the nickname Sweet Legs Horwood and um, <laughs> also, been to, also been told to ask about the paper bag game. But uh, how do you go from, you know, I think it's really intriguing that you're, how many risks you've been willing to take, you know, um, I'm sure your heart desired for you after to do that one year program to go back to Oak Bay, but the job opportunity wasn't there. And like you mentioned, a lot of people would have maybe just not coached or whatever, but you looked at it as another challenge for yourself. And then how and when do you as a family decide that moving on and becoming a coach at the next level is something that you want to do, or is it something that you were already thinking of? Oh, no, I, I, I was preparing for that. That's why I did my master's. I, I assumed I would not be able to get a job at the university level uh, in, in a phys ed faculty without a master's degree. So that's why I did my master's degree. And I was applying to universities for jobs 
and um, you know I applied to a, quite a few across the country and didn't hear from most of them. Um, <clears throat> Um, so I, 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 I had a desire to coach at the university level. My wife, now this is, this is where I'm extremely lucky. My wife, Jill, was not only supportive, I would say she pushed me in that direction. And uh, the story about when I, I got hired in the summer of 1983, in fact, uh, Brian Heaney is a name you'll recognize and a lot of your listeners will recognize, had coached Absolutely. at St. Mary's. And, in, and had beaten U of Vic in uh, 79, in March of 79, in Calgary. I was at the game. I was at U of A then doing my master's. But I was at the game, and uh, Mickey Fox was was outstanding player for St. Mary's. Anyway, Brian Heaney was the coach. Well, <clears throat> that, um, that spring, the coach at the U of A resigned, and they put the job up for um, competition. I applied. I was there doing my master's, so I applied. And, of course, they gave the job to Brian Heaney because he had just won it. Well, he'd won three times at St. Mary's, and he certainly had the resume. So they hired him. So I came out here, and four years later, Brian quit at U of A and moved to U of T. And I had heard that by watching. I was watching University Ad Games on, on TV uh, that summer, and they mentioned that Brian had moved to U of T and that the job was open. So I immediately phoned the athletic director at University of Alberta and uh, told him that I was interested in the job. And he said, his name was Gary Smith, he said, Don, I was just going to give you a call. Well, Gary had been the coach of the Golden Bears the year I was doing my master's, and I was his assistant. So anyway, um, I had an in there. So I, I got interviewed that summer of 83, and I was at back at, I'd come back, flown back from there on uh, whatever night it was. And the next morning, the phone rang and my wife was right there because she was nervous and, you know, wondering what was going on. And she really cared, she really cared that I had an opportunity to, to follow my passion. And she knew how much I wanted to coach at the university level. So the phone rang and, of course, we thought it might be Gary. We didn't know, but we thought it might be. And she was right beside me, hovering around. <laughs> and uh, so she could tell right away when I said, oh, hi, Gary. And Gary said, Don, I'd like to offer you the job to coach the uh, University of Alberta Golden Bears. And I said, oh, geez, Gary. I said, that's awesome. He said, the starting salary is $36,000. And I said, $36,000? And Jill punched me in the arm and she said, take it. Well, I was making 42000 as a high school teacher. So I was yeah. going to take a $6,000 pay cut in 1983, which was a 15% pay cut. And she yeah. punched me in the arm and she said, take it. Uh, I said, okay, fine. I said, yeah, fine, Gary, sure, no problem. Yeah, okay. So uh, Jill, Jill uh, like I said, not only supported me, which I couldn't have done it without her, uh, she pushed it. And anyway, there you go. We ended up in, uh, in Edmonton for 27 years. And... Uh, Wonderful, wonderful city to work in. Fabulous university to work in. Um, I didn't want to retire there because I'm a wimp and I don't want to be in the snow and the ice. But uh, the yeah. people were wonderful. And, and uh, as a city to work in, Edmonton is, is as fine as there is as far as I'm concerned. The people are dynamic. They're go-getters. They're energetic. You know, they tend to be younger. So that's, that's a good part of it as well. So wonderful, wonderful experience. Awesome. Um, and I just, uh, 
every person that we've talked to that is either played or coached or whatever, they always have a partner that's in their corner. Cause especially if you're a coach, you need that person who's in your corner. And, and I love the fact that, uh, she even pushed you to go for it too, which is great. Um, and also when you got offered that first salary is like, welcome to coaching in Canada sometimes, right? Yeah, it all worked out. So totally. And, and let's just talk, touch, touch on, um, you know, some special moments for you. Obviously, a three-time CIS Coach of the Year. Uh, you were able to win three national championships back-to-back, that being um, again. And, um, you know, who are some of the special players, the special moments, and how, how long did it take for you to get the program rolling or be where you wanted? One thing I was so interested in um, when I had the opportunity to go to the ID camp and spend some time at at the program there was um, the community connections that you made and you touched on that as well. And I think that's one of the advantages in Canadian schools for sure is um, if there's smaller communities, people really want to support, you know, and, and they, they love the amateur sport because, you know, yeah, that, you know, you have the Oilers, um, but a lot of these cities may, maybe don't even have a pro team. Right. So it's kind of a multi-parted question, but just reflect on your time with the, uh, the golden bears and, how special those moments were for you? Well, number one, Aaron, when, when we went there, I mean, I think the team before, uh, not the team, but the in the past couple of years, they had about a 33% winning average. So they had a lot of players who weren't, weren't used to winning and kind of accepted the fact that that's the way it was. And you already know from my personality that I was not like that. So we had some... Um, we had some... Uh, we, we butted heads a little bit in the beginning, let's put it that way. I mean, I was fairly young. I mean, I was, I was I think at the time, 37 or 38 years old when I got the job. And, um, you know, the, the program wasn't used to um, being, I guess, being driven in the, as hard as I was, prepared, was driving it. And um, a lot of the players weren't used to that. And they, you know, the, certainly the more senior players had difficulty with it. But... Uh, you know, we battled through it and, and um, they wanted to play and they didn't have much choice because I was the boss. But, you know, they did a lot of running and they did a lot of weight training. And, and again, they weren't used to that because, you know, they weren't, they, they weren't winning championships or anything. So they probably in their own minds didn't see, well, why are we doing all this stuff? And certainly it took a while for them to, 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 to catch on to it or at least to, to uh, come on board, which is what, you know, you hear... The, get on with the program so but it happened I think uh, you know even in our first year we could see the the players could see the improvements the players could see we were losing games but we were losing games now to UVic and to to Calgary and to UBC but they were close losses like we'd lose by six or eight or ten we weren't losing by very much and then every now and then we'd steal a game here and there so um, we we had a, a group of players who were very competitive they wanted to win I don't think in the beginning they, they knew how hard you had to work to be successful. Uh, but once they got on board with the program and realized that it was going to be hard work, they didn't mind doing the hard work, but they wanted to see that there was going to be a benefit to it and that, in fact, the hard work would pay off. And slowly over time in that first year, like I said, even though, I mean, we made the playoffs, uh, but we were, we were a team that was not a pushover for anybody. We, we, com- we competed and we battled with every team. As a matter of fact, uh, probably our best player on that team was a BC High School Boys uh, championship player from Prince George, Mike Suderman. And Mike was our best player at that time. 
And of course, he had come from a winning program and winning culture, and Mike had that kind of attitude. So none of that stuff came as a surprise to him. And he was a leader. He became a leader on that team, and and slowly the others came came on board with him, and they could see the benefits of the hard work. And and even though we lost games, they they knew they were in them and they had a chance. Yes, so slow. So slowly over time, they um, you know they were proud proud to be. Um, basketball players at the University of Alberta, which I think there was a time when they weren't necessarily proud of that, but uh, they were starting to get that. And then in our, in our second year, we ended up winning the Canada West Championship. We hosted it in our gym because in those days, you bid to host the Canada West Championship. And we, we hosted it at the U of A, and we ended up beating Lethbridge in the semifinal. And then we played UVic right in the middle of their big run. So this would have been in the... Um, in March of uh, 85, right in the middle of their big run with big court Clemens up front. And uh, we played him in our gym on, a, I think it was a Sunday afternoon for the Canada West final. And we ended up beating him by 11 or 12 points uh, to win a Canada West championship in, in our second year. So so all, the players were seeing um, the fruits of their hard work and, and their labor. And so they were starting to buy in. And we won that, that uh, Canada West Championship and qualified for nationals. And then, then the players started to say, okay, yes, all right, we see now that, 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 that there are benefits from this, this effort that we're putting in. And slowly that's just built over time. There, was, there were ups and downs. We got really close to the mountaintop, you know, and then, then we lost some important players and we started to slide back down. Then we'd build it back up again. And um, so it was, yeah, it was a long haul until... It, we won our first championship 10 years after I got there, but we were close a couple of years before that, but we just didn't have that kind of, uh, um, we didn't have the winning experience. We, we were winning games and we were, we knew we were near the top, but being able to actually get to the top of that mountain was the last straw, basically, which ha happened in 1993. So it, it took a while, but, um, you know, building the culture, having players understand the, the importance of hard work and commitment and drive, uh, all those things take time. They do, it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Was there, a, was there a special moment or a special recruit that kind of turned things around? Like, I mean, you go back into the history that I know of, of the Golden Bears, you know, the Greg DeVries is the so many great players. But um, to get over that mountaintop in 94, like, was it just a cum accumulation of all the young men that you had the opportunity to build that program up? Or was there something that sort of switched for you well there wasn't, a, there wasn't a, an accumulation of it um there was something ha happened that year which is very 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 astounding and interesting uh in mm. september of uh, 1992 uh our best player rick stanley was six eight forward rick had played the previous two years with unbelievable knee pain he had um oh gosh what is it now when the, the knees i can't remember what it's called um, inflamed knees. They had, there's a name for it. I can't remember what it is. But he practiced and played. He could barely walk after games. And in September of 92, he came into the to my office in September and he, he shook. He had one year left of eligibility. He's a coach. He said, I just can't go through a whole, a whole year like this. He said, my knees are shot. He said, I, you know, I'd love to play. But he said, I just can't go through all the practices and all the games and the icing. And he said, I can't even walk down the stairs after after a game. And I said, Rick, you know, I, I feel really badly for you. I understand 
why you can't play. I said, you know, you did everything you could for this program. When he, when he left after his fourth year, he was the leading all-time scorer in our program. So when he left and he walked out the door, 6'8 center, our leading scorer, our top rebounder, and um, I thought to myself, geez, that's it, we're done. I can't believe it, we had a shot, and ah. Uh. Anyway, I didn't blame Rick, it wasn't his fault. I mean, there's nothing he could do about it. Well, it wasn't a half an hour later, and our top point guard, a little guard named Sean Foote, who was going, to be going into his third year, and he was our second leading scorer, averaging 15 a game, came into my office and said, Coach, he says, I'm not going to play this year. He said, I'm shot. He said, I just don't have the drive. I don't have the motivation. I just can't, I can't see myself going through a whole season. And he said, I don't want to quit halfway through. So he said, I think it's better you know now. And, and I said, Sean, I said, I, you know, this is, this is amazing. I can't believe this. And he said, well, coach, he said, you know, I, I, I've been suffering all summer, not knowing what to do, but he said, I've just lost the desire to play. And I said, well, there's no question, Sean, if you've lost the desire to play, you shouldn't play. It's too long a season, too much work. And anyway, we shook hands and he left. And I mean, I love Sean. He's still, still one of my, my favorite friends and one of my favorite players, as is Rick. Anyway, they, they walked out. I hadn't had our pre-season pre pre meeting with our team yet. Here's our top two players have just <laughs> left. And I'm sitting there. I'm literally in shock. Literally in shock. I thought, here's a team that had a chance to get the Nationals. Now I don't even think we'll make playoffs in Canada West. And I, I just... I, we had our team meeting and I went in and I was all positive with them and telling them all this stuff. And I walked out of the meeting and I went into my office and sat down and I thought, Jesus, that's a lot of bull****. We don't have a shot. This is... Anyway, <laughs> Greg DeVries was on that team. Clayton Pottinger was their team captain. Scotty Kareem, Scott Martell, um, Murray Cunningham, Jay Johnstone, Mark Semenuk, Peter Nechtel. I mean, I, I'm probably leaving some guys out, which is terrible. But we went 18-2. and two, Best uh, Canada West record we'd ever had. And we won our first ever national championship with our two best players walking away in, in, uh, in September. Oh, the other one I forgot to mention was Greg Badger, who was our po other point guard and took over when Sean left. Well, you know, as much as I like Rick and Sean, I don't know if we could have won a national championship with them as players. Not because they did anything wrong, but the dynamics would have been different. Murray Cunningham wouldn't have got as much playing time if Rick was playing. Greg Badger wouldn't have got as much playing time if Sean was playing. Those guys developed into... Uh, they were just the main cogs in the wheel at the end. Greg DeVries turned into the all-time leading scorer in the history of the University of Alberta until a couple of years ago when Jordan Baker uh, beat him out. But Greg DeVries is in the, uh, the University of Alberta Hall of Fame. And that brings up another interesting story about Greg DeVries and the BC High School Boys Basketball Connection. Yeah. In 1974, when we, we had won in 73 here in BC at Oak Bay High School, Terrace and Prince Rupert were strong programs. And so they got together this fall of 73 and decided to fly the bays, the Oak Bay Bays, into Terrace and Prince Rupert to play some exhibition games. So we arrived in Terrace on a Thursday, late, late November. I don't remember the exact date. But we got in there and played Terrace on Thursday night. And the, the coach of Terrace was Ed DeVries. 
And after the game, we were chatting. Uh, they had a good team. We did win, but they had a good team. And I was chatting with Ed after the, and he said, well, he said, it's a good thing we had the game tonight because he said last night I wouldn't have been able to coach. My wife was in hospital giving birth to our son, which I didn't think anything of at the time. He, he told me the name, but I didn't remember. And uh, so that was great. Then we went and played Prince Rupert, then went home. Well, 18 years later, I get a phone call from Gary Taylor, who's now the principal at Lambrick Park High School. And Lambrick hosted the single A BC Championship. Or it might have been the double A. I'm not sure. I think it was single A. Maybe double A. Anyway, yeah. Gary phoned me in my office in Edmonton. And he said, Don, I just saw a player that you've got to recruit. And I said, yeah, who's that? He said, it's a kid named Greg DeVries. He averaged 40 a game. The guy is phenomenal. I said, well, Gary, if he's from BC and he's phenomenal, somebody else has got him by now. No, yeah. he said, I talked to him. I talked to his coach and he said, nobody's recruited him. I said, you got to be kidding. He said, no, nobody's recruited him. And I said, well, what's he doing? He said, well, I think he's going to go to Trinity Western. His family were quite religious. And Trinity Western at the time was a college, not, not in the university system. So Gary said, no, Don, you gotta, you got you to gotta try to get this guy. He was phenomenal. He was outstanding. And so I said, geez, Gary, thanks. I said, I think that, I bet you that's Ed DeVries' son. And I said, Ed used to coach at Terrace. And Ed's in Nelson now, and I knew he was in Nelson, and that's where Greg was from. So anyway, I hung up from Gary, and I phoned Ed DeVries. I, I got the phone number, phoned Ed DeVries in Nelson. And I said, Ed, it's Don Horwood. Oh, Don. He said, are you at the University of Alberta? I said, yes. He, I said, I heard that your son is really good. Well, he said, yeah, I'm biased. I think he's really good. Well, I said, I got a phone call from Gary Taylor in... in uh, in Victoria, and he watched him play on the weekend, and he thinks he's phenomenal. Well, he said, I think he's really good, too. And I said, well, what's Greg going to do? And he said, well, he's going, he's planning to go to Trinity Western. And I said, uh, well, did he think about, has he thought about going to university, uh, you know, rather than college? And uh, Ed said, well, I think he'd love to go to university, but he didn't get recruited. And I said, oh, he didn't get recruited. So I started to think, well, come on now, the there's three universities in British Columbia, none of them recruit him. Like, there's got to be something wrong here. Yeah. So he said, no, none of them recruit him. So he's going to go to Trinity. I said, well, do you mind if I see if he's interested in the U of A? He said, no, no, go ahead, talk to him. So I got him on the phone and I said, Greg, you know, I've heard so many good things about you. I said, we'd love to have you come to the University of Alberta and, and, uh, and be part of the Golden Bears basketball program. I said, I haven't seen you play. So I, I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be like, but I said I've got supreme recommendations from people I really trust. And uh, <clears throat> I said, you know, I, I'd really like you to give it some thought. And he said, well, gee, thank you, coach. He said, I'll, uh, I will think about it and I'll get back to you. So he phoned the next day and he said, yeah, yeah. he said, I'd really like to come to the University of Alberta. Well, of course, he changed our history at the University of Alberta. I mean, in his first year, he was, you know, not, not a great player. He was... He was a good player, but fundamentally you could see how sound he was and what a great shooter and, and what uh, basketball instincts he had. But he just wasn't strong enough yet at that level. I mean, he just, as a matter of fact, I think he turned 18 in his first year at U of A. He was a pretty young kid. He might have only been 17 when he came to U of A, probably was. But anyway, right. Um, 
you know, you could see that he, that he was going to be a pretty good player, but he had, he had to get through some some hard times in the learning. But anyway, he became our all-time leading scorer, and I would say, uh, you know, he certainly changed the dynamics of our team from that from the moment he came into the program until. Like he was in his third year when we won our first national championship. And by then he had taken over as our leading scorer. And uh, he was there in, in 94 uh, and 95 when we won again. And then in 96, we lost in the final to Brandon. Were you on that 96 team? I was not. I'm not that old oh, yet. Not that old yet. Oh, you're just a youngster. <laughs> so you, oh, I'm sorry. So I told you once I get talking, it's, it's hard to interject. <laughs> No, I'm not offended at all. Don't worry about it. So you won it back to back and even made it to the national final the third year in a row? Yes, we were in the national championship three years in a row. And we lost the national final in 96 to Brandon with Keith Vassell in his final year. And uh, they had a couple of other recruits from another part of the world. But yeah. um, <laughs> we, um, I think we lost, but we ended up losing by about six or something. But uh, they were a very good team. I mean, they were worthy champions. However, I, the way the schedule worked in those days, we played the late game on yeah. Saturday night. So we actually didn't get back to our room until I think it was midnight. Yeah. And we, I, I think we teed off the next day, or teed off, to, uh, <laughs> tip off was around noon or one o'clock the next day. So we didn't yeah. get a lot of rest. So our guys were pretty tired. I'm not using that as an excuse, but uh, nope. you know, we, we did play very well and Brandon was a deserving winner. But uh, yeah, we did play for three in a row at that time. With was that in Halifax? Yes, in Halifax. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was like we so we went through that. We won the semifinal against Western in '01, and then had to play Saint Avex. Yeah, like one o'clock the next day, and it was yeah for sure. I mean, we ended up losing in overtime in a close game, but it was definitely a factor, right? It's a it's a grind out there, but what a great experience. So that was '01. Um, you lost to to X in '01. Yeah. Yeah, and then we won our third championship in '02. Right. So we won right. the next year. That's right. And who? And I mean, thanks for touching on Greg DeVries. I was going to ask about him anyways, but I mean, he was such a special and phenomenal player. Um, he's got to be one of the best U sport athletes for basketball ever. Um, who are, Who are some of the guys on that '02 team? And remind us about who you played and how that game went as well. And so cool that we get to touch on you know multiple years for yourself. You must feel through all that hard work, pretty fortunate to, uh, you know, have a nose for recruiting and bring some special guys in and have some great coaching alongside you as well to, well, to keep that well, program we, yeah, for so long. Yeah, we did long. have some special guys, but, you know, we did have some really, really good guys from Edmonton as well. There was a, um, a lot of the guys had gone through our various summer camps and, and were caught up in the Golden Bears uh, culture. And, uh, you know, we even though we had Greg DeVries on that team, Murray Cunningham was from... Uh, just outside of Edmonton, a, a little town called Manville, 800 people, and he had to go into Lloydminster to, to attend high school so he could play basketball. And we had Scott Martell from Edmonton, Greg Badger from Edmonton, uh, Peter Nechtel was from Calgary. Um, we had, oh gee, I don't know, but anyway, we had a lot of Alberta kids and two or three uh, players from British Columbia, usually get them from the college system, Jay Johnstone, um, uh, Mark Semenuk, and uh, Greg Sale from Prince George. Uh, yeah. We had some really, really good, I call them, second-tier players when they came out of high school, but we got them because, you know, the universities in, in British Columbia got the top tier. They got the top level. 
we got right. we we were able to get two or three of the lower level or, or mid level players who developed yeah. into great players when they got an opportunity to do that. So we mm -hmm. were very lucky that way. And speaking I mean, about the two thousand two team, some of the players on that team, I, you may Phil Shearer was our point guard. Yep. And Phil was a phenomenal point guard. I mean, he was he would have been one of our all time great point guards for sure. Um, mm. We had a, a player, unfortunately, for only one year, a, a kid named Robbie Valpreda, 6'8". Yeah. And Robbie was not really that interested in school. So he only lasted, unfortunately for us, one year. But he was, he actually reminds me of um, Jokic, who played for Denver. Very, very similar player. Uh, Robbie could have played in Europe and Italy, but he didn't want to leave Edmonton, didn't want to go away from home. But he was a 6'8 kid that was a great three-point shooter. And we had parts of our offense where uh, where our guard would down screen and our post would step out to the three and look to post up our guard. But Robbie was such a good three-point shooter with that when when he would pop out, he had the green light to shoot the three. And I remember one game down in Lethbridge, he hit four threes in a row. And uh, But that was the kind of player he was. He was also our leading rebounder. He averaged over 12 a game. And he was an All-Canadian that year, but unfortunately he only played that one year. Also on that team was uh, Ryan Baldry. Stephen Parker was the MVP of the tournament that year. Yep. And Stephen's now a lawyer in Edmonton. Uh, Mike Melnichuk. Um, I mean, there were, uh, Reuben Hall was our team captain that year. Mm -hmm. And Reuben uh, was a graduate of Esquimalt High School here in Victoria and played yep. two years at Malaspina in yep. Nanaimo. Yep. And so we recruited yep. Reuben out of, out of Nanaimo. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, they're wonderful years, wonderful people, um, great memories, and it's always nice to culminate in a championship. But no matter what, even the teams we didn't win with, we had some great, great players and great people and hard workers, and, you know, tr they had tremendous accomplishments, even yeah. though they didn't all yeah. win, win the ultimate prize. For sure. And then the challenge is just trying to get there. That's the fun part. And um, I think it's cool that you touched on the local guys, but also... Um, you know, for those kids that are playing at smaller schools out there to just, you never know who's watching. You never know the connections through basketball. You got to keep pushing. It doesn't matter if you're playing a league game and you think, you know, the school you're playing in some small town, you're going to win by 50. There may be someone there who's there as a friend of a friend of a friend, you know, and, and to just always be professional and work hard. And without that random connection to the DeFries family, who knows how things go, right? It's just such a funny way how things can work out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point you've made there, Aaron, to young kids, any who might be listening or their parents. Uh, yeah, you, you know, the, the basketball community is a small one and it's very interconnected and word gets around. So if you're the kind of kid that's really working hard and you've got some skill and, and you've got a passion, there's probably somebody's going to see you and somebody's going to say to somebody, oh, no, this kid sh should go here, should go there, and, uh, and the word will get around. No question. Yeah. Appreciate your time here, and, and just a couple more questions. And I, I want to just touch on one really cool thing in your, you know, on your bio and doing some research on you. Is talk about what it was like being a part of the 1996 Olympics with CBC and, and doing the color commentary, and that just being a part of that. That must have been so fun. Well, I do have a, I do, I do have a good story about me getting that job at uh, CBC. They had. Uh, the year before, of course, they're getting their, what they call them talent, you know, the on-camera on, on people. They, they're, they're getting their talent in place 
a year previous to the Olympics. Of course, you know, they got to have all that organized ahead of time. Well, luckily, coming from Edmonton, I mean, a lot of the sportscasters that were in Toronto and TSN and, and so on in those days came through Edmonton. Guys like Gord Miller, Darren Duchishan, uh, um, I mean, I can't even name them all now. There were so many of them that I think Gord Miller at the time was working for CBC. And when they were looking, thinking for somebody for a um, color commentator for basketball, uh, somebody gave CBC, uh, Joel Darling, I think was the guy's name, that he was the producer or whatever, gave him my name and uh, suggested, you know, that I might be a good color person. So uh, I got a phone call from Joel and he introduced himself. He said, Don, we're putting together our, our talent list for the 96 Olympics. And he said, uh, your name has come up as a potential color commentator. And I said, oh, wow. I said, that's, that's great. <laughs> Wonderful. I, really nice to be considered. So he said, I'd like to be able to, um, I'd like to, be able to uh, set up an audition. And uh, this was in spring, probably May or whatever. So, you know, we had a bit of time. And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. And he said, well, I'll set it up over at the CBC studio in Edmonton. And he said, we'll fly in Don Whitman, because he, he's going to be one of the play-by-play the -play guys. And we'll get you to do a, um, you know, a, a, off a monitor. You can do a, a segment with Don, and, and uh, you can be the color guy, and Don will be play-by-play. -play. And I said, oh, that's awesome. I said, Don Whitman's f fabulous, and so on. So anyway... <clears throat> So we set up the time and it was set for whatever day. It doesn't really matter. And so now I'm thinking, okay, uh, you got three or four guys trying out for this position. Now, how can I stand out? Like what, what can I do to make me stand out uh, above these other guys? And so I thought to myself, well, this guy doesn't know me. He's coming in tomorrow morning. I'm going to meet him for the audition first thing. He has no idea who I am. And uh, so I have to make an impression. So... I decide I'm going to make an impression. So I'm on my way, I'm getting ready to go to the studio and my wife has gone to work and I'm there by myself and I thought, okay, I'm gonna do this. And I was a little bit nervous because it was kind of risky, but I thought, ah, as we talked about earlier, risk is part of it. So I thought, no, I'm gonna do this and hell with it. If it works, fine. If it doesn't, fine. So I covered my face in bandages. First aid band-aids all over my face, forehead, cheeks, lips, nose, everywhere. <laughs> Covered my face in band-aids. And I walked into the CBC studio and they, you know, opened the door. Jeez, what happened to you? Uh, I said, it's a long story. I said, uh, my name's Don Horwood. I'm here to see Joel Darling. So they showed me in and I walked in. and I'd never met Joel Darling in my life. He looked, jeez, what happened to you? I said, Joel, you're not going to believe this. I said, I was playing recreational hockey last night and I got hit from behind and I slid into the boards and slammed my face and I got all these cuts and bruises and I said I woke up this morning I thought oh my god I got this addition how am I going to be able to do this with my face with a mess like this so I said I thought well I'll come in and see what you say I mean I, I don't know if you don't want to do it fine and Joel said oh my god I'm so sorry to hear that no no we can still do the audition and so when he said that I started to pull off all the band-aids and he looked, what the hell is going on? I said, well, I said, I just wanted to make a little bit of an impression. And well, he said, you certainly made that. <laughs> so anyway, I did the audition and I ended up getting the job. So I spent three weeks in Atlanta in 19, 1996. 
But unfortunately, in 1996, the men's team weren't in the Olympics, and the women's team was there. But you know, they were they were good, but they weren't really highly competitive. So we did right. not get a lot of air time. <laughs> right. Basketball did not make the waves, uh, the airwaves, very often. We they cut to us every now and then. We would get there at about eight eight thirty in the morning, and we'd be there till about eleven o'clock at night, sitting at the, yeah. watching all the games. And there might be nothing happening, and all of a sudden, uh, the first week I was with Don Whitman, and the second week I was with Chris Cuthbert, and um, Don and I would be sitting there, we'd be talking and chatting, and then the game would be on. It could be Japan versus Yugoslavia, and uh, we'd have our little notes and stuff, and then all of a sudden, uh, Don would elbow me and says, we're going to be on in two minutes. And so they would switch to us for two or three minutes, and we'd do our do our thing and and then bang they'd be off again and that was that was about it for the 96 olympics we didn't really get a lot of uh we didn't get a lot of air time in those days ah uh, but you got a trip to go watch some pretty decent basketball yeah <laughs> um one, one of the one of the funny experiences and lenny wilkins was the coach of the american team that year okay and um okay. and lenny was also the coach of the atlanta hawks so like they knew him in Atlanta. So he arrives for the press conference and they have his name printed on a little card and they've got his name spelt wrong. <laughs> <laughs> He's the coach of the American national team and the coach of the Atlanta Hawks and it's in Atlanta and he arrives for a press conference and his name is spelled wrong. <laughs> I thought to myself, well, it doesn't matter who you are. You can be humble pretty quickly. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Um, did he remember you from back in the day going down and coaching at his no, camps? No, in fact, uh, no, and I didn't expect him to, but interesting, yeah. I yeah. did I did try to find a minute. Now, he was very busy, you can imagine, at the Olympics. Of course. But I did try to find a minute, and I reminded him, because back when he first got the job with the Supersonics, was around 72 or 73, I can't remember the exact year. But they, were, they did a lot of promotions in those days, the Supersonics did. So, in fact, Lenny, and uh, he had a co-worker, uh, I think his name was... Uh, Dave Wartman, not Wartman, but um, yeah, it might be Dave Wartman. They came up to do a little uh, clinic at, at Oak Bay High School and and promotional in the area. And Lenny, I had, my wife made lunch for us and we had lunch at our house. And then Lenny and I and Dave went over to uh, uh, Windsor Park tennis courts and we played tennis because Lenny was really big into tennis in those days. So we played tennis. So I tried to um, at the Olympics, I tried to stop. Well, I tried to to have a minute to talk to him, but of course he was way too busy. And I reminded him of coming to Victoria, and he said, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah." <laughs> like I could tell he couldn't remember. But yeah. anyway, so no, I did try to connect, but there was just no no opportunity and no no chance to talk about any of that stuff. How's your How's your? But serve? I actually did play on. I actually did play on the court with him because when I worked his camps in in uh, Seattle in in the mid seventies. Uh, he would he would he wasn't there most of the time, but he would show up one or two nights a week and speak to the kids. And then after the coach, you know, the, after after the campers were done, there'd always be a um, coaches versus um, a counselors games. And right. so we played in those games, and a few nights Lenny played in those games with us. So that was kind of fun to play with an NBA Hall of Fame. Yeah, no doubt. How was he? Was he good? Yeah, he was, but I mean, he, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't doing very much. He didn't. Right. Lenny's a pretty humble guy, and I mean, he wasn't really trying to 
to show anybody what he could do or not do. And he was mostly just he dribbled around and pass it to somebody. Sort of fair thing. enough. <laughs> there were a lot of young counselors there who, in those days, you know, counseling at camps in the U.S. was like we we're talking about. You never know who's going to see. I mean, Lenny Wilkins is coach of the Supersonics. So if right. you're a counselor at a camp, like you're a usually a college player who's working, you know, at a, at a camp in the summer. So when they got into those those uh, counselor coach games, I mean, they work they work really hard because here's an NBA coach that they might impress. So those were the guys who were really trying to impress him, of course, rather than the other way around. So for sure, it was just interesting yeah. dynamic. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so much great insight in this awesome episode. Uh, before we start there. We, we usually end up the the podcast firing some random questions at you. But um, before we get into that, you know, I just sit here and think about your resume and your life through basketball. And uh, when you kind of started the journey and, you know, you're out in Newfoundland getting it going, did you ever think, you know, the name Don Hoare would be inducted into, you know, the Oak Bay Hall of Fame, the University of Alberta Sports Wall of Fame, you know, the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame, and well, as well as getting, you know, a city, um, you know, a statue to excellence award from the city of Al Alberta and Edmonton. Like, did you ever in your wildest dreams think that that's the way it was going to go? Or did you just get taught at a young age that hard work and determination and treating people well will get you, you know, forward in life? I'm just because I, I can only imagine what your brain thinks sometimes when you're after a three putt and you hop in a golf cart and maybe you have a flashback to your life and, and your life through basketball. Well, it's interesting you say that, Aaron, because obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, maybe it's not obvious, but growing up in a little town in, in Newfoundland, none of those things could have possibly been in my mind. I didn't even know they existed. And, you know, in your day-to-day -day life, when you're you're just trying to get by, and, and certainly when I moved back out here, to, or when I moved out here to BC and, and trying to, to run the program and learn about how to play and coach, None of that stuff is ever in your mind. And I mean, it's like players when they're inducted into the halls of Hall of Fame and those sorts of things. I mean, they don't think about that till after they retire. I mean, I don't think anybody who's playing basketball is thinking, oh, I've, I better play well today so I can make it into the Hall of Fame. I mean, you're just playing because you're passionate and anything else that happens to you is, is, a, is a byproduct of, of what you've done. And so, you know, I, I couldn't know. I couldn't even imagine being outside Newfoundland, let alone, let alone accomplishing some of the things that we've been able to do. And yeah. I've been very lucky. I've been very fortunate that I've had support at home with my wife and my family, my kids when they were young. And, you know, I've had wonderful people that I've worked with and, and have been supportive of me. And as you know, you can't, not, nowhere can you go on the journey in life without having people who are there to help you and support you when you need it. And, you know, like, like everybody else, I've been very fortunate to have some good people. Yeah, that's great. Um, thank goodness for a full tank of gas and a Mustang too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good Mustang too. Yeah, nice. Okay, are you ready? Some Just some random rapid fire questions and whatever comes to your mind first, you just spit away. How's that sound before we let you go? Do the best we can. Okay. Um. What are your thoughts? It's a very controversial topic on this podcast. What are your thoughts about ketchup on macaroni? No. Just flat out. Love it. Gross. Okay. <laughs> it all takes the cheese all taste away. What's the point in having macaroni and cheese without being able to taste the cheese? 
You heard it, people from a Hall of Famer. So all you ketchup people out there, pay attention to Coach Horwood. Dijon ketchup, um, maybe. Oh, okay. A little bit of spice, Don't maybe. You know kinda? that from spice, the maybe, from the Bare Naked Ladies song, Millionaire. Oh yeah. <laughs> you got a uh, seven a.m. tea time tomorrow. You wake up, grab a coffee or tea. You get in the car. What are some of the musicians or music that you're listening to on the way to the golf course? Well, I listen to a radio station on the way to the golf course, so I get whatever's on random. But it's classic rock. Uh, if I were on my way, probably on my own, I would put on maybe a little bit of uh, possibly ACDC, maybe Aerosmith, maybe Pink wow. Floyd. Um, yeah, a little bit of the heavier metal uh, bands. I, yes. I wouldn't want to be too calm. Although maybe I should switch that up. Hey, I think you just hit on something. I'm getting too revved up on the golf course. I need to calm down. So, okay, I'm going to put on a little Zephyr or Zephyr. What, what's he called? Zamfir. <laughs> I need some Zamfir, not not uh, ACDC. <laughs> I love it. Somewhere Kev Hansen is fired up because he's a huge ACDC guy too. So well done. Yeah, well, see, I knew Kevin. I knew Kevin was a smart guy. <laughs> he just hides it so well. <laughs> wow! Shots fired. <laughs> okay, Kev. Okay, okay. You you'll get your turn. <laughs> Who in your mind? is the greatest basketball player of all time. Jordan. Michael, if you need. <laughs> Why? Well, I think the biggest thing that, the one thing that if anybody ever want to um, compare Jordan with most other players, find some clips of Jordan playing and look at close-ups of his face. You will never see Michael Jordan with other than rivers of sweat pouring down his face. And you can see LeBron James many times, and he doesn't have sweat pouring down his face. The difference, in my opinion, is Jordan really worked at the defensive end and the offensive end. And I think, I think that's what separates him, in my opinion, from LeBron James. I've seen LeBron James play defense like I play defense, just stand there and let guys go by him. Jordan had way too much pride for that. And I, so I think Jordan just was a better all-around player. He was more intense, I think. And, and Love it. more drive. Great. Good answer. Two more questions. Uh, the most important person in your life has been, or people? My wife, number one. And my kids, number two. Good stuff. You've touched and on that parents, a few times. I guess you'd have to put them in there because without them, who knows where I'd be. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'd be Aaron Mitchell. <laughs> and God knows we wouldn't want that, would we? And I wouldn't yeah. want that. No, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. <laughs> Anyways, thanks for a hoops journey. On, we'll see you on the next episode. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he waits <laughs> He waits an hour and a half to start taking shots at everyone. Hey, I love it. Um, well, you didn't give me a chance. You, you were asking serious questions before. <laughs> um, and then the last question we always like to ask people is a little bit of a reflective one, and it's if you could do it all again, you would what? Uh, oh, gee. I wouldn't change most things. There are a few things, of course, I've done in my life that I wish I hadn't. Uh, but, you know, um, no, everything that I've done, I've been very fortunate. I've done pretty well what I've wanted to do. Um, I at one time uh, wished I could coach the national team, but that wasn't in the cards. And, you know, lots of people have wishes and desires that don't work out. But uh, on the whole, I have no regrets. I've had a fabulous life. And as I've said to my wife many times, 
and to my kids, Chris and Kelly. No matter what happens to me, no matter how much longer I've got left, I've had a wonderful life. I've got no complaints. That's poetic. I love it. Um, and I think you should be proud of all that you've accomplished and the you know, all the young men that you've been had the opportunity to coach and see their paths through life. And I know probably one of the greatest things for you is just hearing about them and going to weddings and um, seeing what their lives are like. And, you know, they're they start to have families themselves and you've touched so many people in so many different ways. We were so excited to get you on this podcast. I think young or old, many people. Oh, Aaron, I do have one other regret. I forgot to mention. Go for it. I regret you didn't come to the university of Alberta because we would have won three more national championships. (laughs) You know what? If I'm, if I'm being totally honest, um, and, and, and you talked about your comfort zone and like, I, I do kind of look back and I think, I wonder what it would have been like to go and, uh, and to play for you under you. Cause I think it would have been a good experience, but, um, you know, it's all just part of the journey through. It would have been too hard on you, Aaron. It wouldn't have been too, <laughs> too hard on you. <laughs> Harder than Richie Chambers? No, nah, I don't know. Now that's a good, that's a very good question. I don't know. Probably not. No, probably <laughs> not, but maybe similar. Well, before we let you go, um, super aware of your time, you probably have dinner to prep or something. Um, is there, is there a moment or do you have a story or someone you want to shout out before we let you go, uh, that you feel like you haven't had the opportunity? Well, the only thing I would say is that, you know, I, I'm very respectful and thankful for all the players that I have had the privilege to coach over 41 years of coaching. And I mean, you don't always get along with every player and every player doesn't always get along with you. And, and there's obviously conflicts along the way, and sometimes your teams aren't successful. But I've always had nothing but respect for all the players who did everything they could to the best of their abilities. And I just thank all of them for all of their effort through all the years. It's made my life very uh, enjoyable and rewarding and worth living, and I appreciate it. Wow. Well said. Um you know, I'm still considering myself young in the coaching game. And if I can have that wisdom in 25 years, that'll make 41 years and I'll be pretty thankful as well. So thanks for being with us, coach. It's great to hear your voice and reconnect. My brother is on the island, so I'd love to uh, get out with you and Ian, maybe a few people for a beer the next time I head over there and we can chat in person. And um, I just love that uh, the game of basketball has connected us through Scotty Lee to you and and just so many stories, right? And um, Shout out to Scotty Lee for getting us together. For sure. And uh, thank you so much. A great episode to our listeners. Take away Don Horde, absolute legend. Please like and subscribe to the podcast, and we will see you on the next show.